strange but true stories have been recorded since people began writing. Ancient literature is full of wonders, and chronicles of the period did not see the fantastic as somehow separate from subjects like politics and war. For example, Herodotus, the father of history, described races of monstrous men, swarms of winged snakes, and gold-guarding griffins, and countless other marvels. Medieval and Renaissance tales are top-heavy with miracles. The 19th century turned out numberless pseudo-scientific and spiritualist books, along with pamphlets describing local oddities and true histories sold by sideshow performers, most of whom were apparently captured after a bloody struggle in the jungles of Borneo. Cartoonist Robert L. Ripley's popular newspaper column, Believe It or Not, first appeared in 1918. But for many, the modern era of strange but true writing began a year later with the publication of Charles Hoy Fort's The Book of the Damned. And so begins today's procession. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, June 6, 2016, and today we will consider the true story behind the terrifying upcoming film, The Bye Bye Man. In 1990, three college students spent a long Wisconsin winter experimenting with a Ouija board. It turned out to be the deadliest mistake of their lives. The board brought them into contact with a psychic serial killer known only as The Bye Bye Man. Learning his name makes you vulnerable, but thinking about it draws the bye-bye man to you. He is a relentless traveler, moving night and day, coming ever closer until the shrill sound of a steady whistle announces his arrival. He might turn up outside your bedroom door, speaking in the voice of a trusted friend, someone who would never hurt you. Here is the authentically terrifying true life story recounted by historian Robert Damon Schneck. In a chapter of his classic underground collection of weird Americana, which formed the basis for the major motion picture, The Bye Bye Man, which will premiere December 9, 2016. This unsettling tale is accompanied by seven more chapters of twisted history and includes the author's new afterword, Searching for the Bye Bye Man. Robert Damon Schneck is the author of The President's Vampire, Strange But True Tales of the United States of America, which was recently republished as The Bye Bye Man. Schneck also wrote the Bram Stoker Award-nominated Mr. Wakeman vs. the Antichrist and Other Strange But True Tales from American History. A longtime chronicler of the weird and unexplained, he has written about everything from killer clowns to suicide clubs. Schneck wrote most of the book that became The Bye-Bye Man at his regular table in McDonald's in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. It is with some trepidation that we are speaking with him today. How are you doing, Robert? I'm doing fine, and there's no reason for trepidation. <laughs> well, I'm ha- a teddy bear. <laughs> well, I have to say, the, I, the the premise of the Bye Bye Man is the exact premise that freaks me out the most. It's kind of like the the Heisenberg principle of the occult, where the story somehow draws you, the reader, into it, and then you are part of, you, you know, the story comes out of the book in into your life. Yes. Well, uh, when I, when the book first came out and I was promoting the book and being interviewed, I wouldn't use the name The Bye-Bye Man because there were a lot of people who have trouble getting things out of their mind. 
when they're told not to think about something, it's all they can think about. They can't stop. It just repeats and repeats, and that's the worst thing you can do in the case of the bye-bye man. But, you know, there were, uh, there were other, there were other, um, there were other things to be considered when the book was reissued and when they titled the movie The Bye-Bye Man, that was, there was more or less no more reason to stop using the name. The original title was Bridge to Body Island. And why, could you explain that a little bit? Sure. The, um, uh, maybe I should give a quick rundown of the story of The yeah. Bye-Bye Man. Th- then, the, uh, then the title will make more sense. Like you said, it it began with three college students in 1990. It was a long winter in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, which is famous for being where the painter Georgia O'Keeffe came from. And uh, a friend of mine named Eli was working in a group home for people suffering from a a very peculiar disease uh, called Prater Willie. That's another story. Anyway, he had a girlfriend, and they both had a friend named Jonathan. So it was... Eli, Catherine, and Jonathan. They were the three people involved. So it's Eli was my friend, Catherine was his girlfriend, and Jonathan was a mutual friend of them both. Now, Eli was always been fascinated by the paranormal. And uh, at one point, he was actually the librarian at the American Society for Psychical Research. So he has a serious interest in it. And they came into possession of an old Ouija board that had been found in an attic, and they decided to do some experiments. It began with simple experiments. Eli wanted to see if they could get results, if they could uh, get um, messages, if everyone, in, if everyone using the Ouija board was blindfolded, if the lights were off, things like that. Uh, he was unable to get it to move. He has some kind of a, uh, uh, a force field that prevents anything from strange ever happening to him, which he finds very frustrating. However, Jonathan and Catherine were able to use the, we use the planchette, which is the little table, the little uh, pointer on the Ouija board that slides across the surface and allows you to, and picks out the letters. So Jonathan and Catherine were using the were using the planchette and getting a lot of messages. All the messages came through what was co- what called itself the spirit of the board. It was kind of like how a medium has a control, uh, a spirit that it uses to contact other spirits. The spirit of the board introduced the two sitters to what called themselves other spirits, and they would give them messages. Now, most of what came through was pretty typical, kind of new agey, crystals, incense, love, you know, love each other, bright light, that kind of thing, which was fine. But Eli got bored, and he decided he wanted to push the experiment a little further, and he wanted to see if they could get information about a person who a spirit who had lived, somebody who was once alive and had, and he would be able to document their existence and anything that he told them. The spirits they were talking to had never lived. They were all kind of airy, ethereal beings. But he wanted to talk to someone who had lived so he could see, so he could verify that this person had existed and they were indeed talking to the spirit of someone that they never knew. Well, 
that became the next step of uh, the next stage of, of what they were doing. And they didn't get anybody. The spirit of the board finally told them that there was a living human being trying to get into contact with them, but that he was evil and that the spirit of the board didn't want to put them in touch with him. Well, back Eli's ears went up like a Doberman and when he heard that. So that was the one they wanted to talk to. They refused to talk to anybody else. They wanted He wanted to talk to the evil one. Catherine was not happy about this. Jonathan was kind of indifferent. So after a while, Eli had the idea that since the spirits enjoyed chatting so much, that the sitters would go on a strike. They would no longer hear the spirits' a conversation unless they got conversation with this living being. Well, the spirit of the board said he wouldn't do that, but he would relay the information from this being who called himself the bye-bye man to the sitters. And they, over a long period of time, um, weeks, I think, finally got the story of the bye-bye man, which was that he had been born an albino in Louisiana. He was put in an orphanage in a place called Algiers, which is a section of New Orleans on the other side of the river. He, uh, as he grew older, he lost his sight. He became blind, and he was always trying to escape from the orphanage. Finally, he attacked one of the nurses with a pair of scissors and seriously wounded her and escaped. They never caught him again, and he began to ride the rails like a hobo. Somewhere along the line, he acquired black magical powers of some kind, maybe voodoo because it was Louisiana. I don't know. He was, the story was never that specific. But dead and mutilated bodies started to turn up by railroad tracks, and they were mutilated in a peculiar way. Their tongues were torn out, and their eyes were gone. What the bye-bye man was doing was he was traveling around and collecting these pieces, and he sewed them together to create a little living monster called Gloomsinger. Gloomsinger acted as the bye-bye man's eyes. The bye-bye man wore a pair of dark glasses that were painted on the inside. He wore a pea coat and carried a sack with bloodstains on the bottom called the sack of gore. That presumably carried the pieces that he collected from his murder victims. When someone began to think, when someone became aware of the name the bye-bye man, he would ride the rails and start to get closer and closer and closer to them. When he was finally within striking distance, Gloomsinger would then crawl out on all those tongues and eyes, track down the, the uh, person who was thinking, and emit a loud whistle. And when the bye-bye man heard that, he was able to close in and murder the person, take, presumably take their eyes and tongues, put it in his bag, and as pieces of Gloomsinger fell apart, I guess they decomposed, he would add them to, to the monster. Now, that was the story of the bye-bye man. When Catherine heard that, she was finished. She would have nothing else to do with the seances. She, had, she was one of those people that had a history of paranormal experiences, and she did not like them. They frightened her. And she was done. Well, 
Eli and Jonathan tried to keep the seances going, but no luck. It, it was obviously it was Catherine that was the person, if you like, the medium who was needed to make these uh, to make the seances work. Well, finally the. Uh, Time, over time, Jonathan moved away. He was going to school in Madison, Wisconsin, and Eli and Catherine were, were I guess, still in Sun Prairie, or maybe they had gone over to a, another place where they were going to school. I don't remember the detail. But Catherine began to have trouble sleeping. She was having nightmares. She was waking up constantly. She was uh, prone to panic attacks, and she was uh, having them. They went to my friend's hometown, which is called Wausau, Wisconsin. It's famous for an insurance company. And they were going to go see a concert. And it was a beautiful day, so they were walking around Wausau before the concert. And there is a railroad bridge that crosses uh, the Wisconsin River. And there's an island in, that, in, that, in the Wisconsin River that the railroad bridge touches, uh, is built on, rather. And I think the proper name of the, of the island is Barker Stewart Island. But it got the nickname Body Island because in the old days, when lumberjacks would drown upriver, the bodies would sometimes turn up on that island. They would, they would wash up on that island. Anyway, there was also this old train track going across it with, with an old railroad bridge. And... Eli and Catherine were walking across the bridge. She was actually crossing the bridge. He went down to the river. He said he wanted to look. He thought he saw a turtle. And Catherine began to hear a whistle. Now, hearing a whistle is not strange when you're on a rail, an active railroad bridge. It's not a busy bridge, but they do sometimes have trains. This was not a train whistle, though. She said it was a human-sounding whistle, and it was getting louder and louder, and she panicked. She started running and had a panic attack that lasted the rest of the day. That more or less also finished up their relationship uh, because Eli was just fascinated. He was not terribly, I, I suspect he was not as sympathetic as she thought he should be. He then went over to, he then went to go visit Jonathan in Madison. And Jonathan had also had a had had some very strange experiences. First, he had been having the same trouble sleeping, the same nightmares, and it was it was uh, keeping him awake. He he was just having a, he felt he felt exhausted. But one night something happened that he that terrified him. He was lying in bed, and he heard a knock on the door. It was very late at night. He heard a knock on the door, and woke up, and. Catherine was out in the hallway. Her, you could hear her voice in the hallway saying, hey, Jonathan, come on, let's go get breakfast. She's knocking on the door. He says, okay, okay. Gets up, starts getting dressed, looks out the window, and he realizes it's, it's the middle of the night. She's not going to be knocking on his door to go to breakfast in the middle of the night. More than that, it was the middle of the night, and the front door of the boarding house where he was living was locked. She couldn't have just come in. When the knocking and her voice continued, he just crumpled. He lay on the floor till morning and in, in a state of terror. And after that, that was it. He, he, had, he wanted nothing more to do. I think he was done too. So here was Eli left still fascinated by the story. 
eventually Catherine and Jonathan started dating. So, you know, I guess they had something in common. And they, I think they might have both been a little annoyed at Eli. But he loved this story. It fascinated him. And it became a standard every year he would give what he called a devil night's party, which is the night before Halloween. Uh, Where I grew up, we called that cabbage night. Where he grew up, they called that devil's night. And at the end of every one of these parties, they would always close with the guests telling personal ghost stories or stories of, of their encounters with monsters or ESP or anything bizarre. And when they were finished... Eli would tell the story of the bye-bye man. That's where I heard it, at one of these Devil's Night's parties. And I have heard a lot of strange stories over the years. As you can imagine, when people hear what I do, they will take me aside and they'll tell me about their experiences with ghosts and monsters and psychic phenomena. And, uh, you know, they, they. I remember one story about a guy who was on a beach and his grandmother walked by, even though he knew she was 400 miles away. And it turned out she had died at that day, the day that he saw her walking on the beach. That's a, that's not a, a terribly unusual phenomenon, but that's the kind of story I'm used to hearing. This story, however, got under my skin. It spooked me. In fact, the, the morning after the party, I woke up in bed, and I was looking at that bit of light under the my bedroom door because that's what Jonathan saw. He saw that, 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 that uh, line of bright light coming in from the hallway, only he saw two shadows of feet. And all I could do was lie there looking at the light and wondering if I was going to be seeing feet outside my door. So like I said, this story spooked me. And since I write about the strange and the paranormal, I decided it was too good just to keep to myself. And that's when I decided to put it in the book that was originally titled The President's Vampire. So that's why it was called The Bridge to Body Island. Okay. Well, so Eli has an obsession with the paranormal. You would, could, we would conclude that you too have that, a similar obsession. I don't think I have an obsession with the, paran- uh, with the paranormal so much as I have a par- an obsession with the bizarre, with whatever is anomalous and doesn't fit. Uh, the paranormal falls into that category. For example, uh, right now I'm collecting material for a new book, and these stories, some of them have paranormal elements, but they're really about truly bizarre human behavior which is, I find, just as fascinating. I mean, people will do things that make a little episode of ESP seem laughable. It's so unimportant. Uh, you know, they're, they're capable of truly bizarre behavior. Well, so this is this is so interesting because this is a topic that we're definitely very interested on this show. Uh, and part of the idea is... Uh, something that's explained in a in a new book by Whitley Strieber and Jeffrey Kripal about how the, what we think of as the supernatural, you know, this above natural or the paranormal, which is beyond the normal, is actually normal. Would you conclude the the same that there's something 
really normal about? It's it's our paradigm that's a little out of whack at that we do well, have wh- where do you end up in that kind of you, you know when you that that excerpt you read at the beginning where uh it, it talks about how historians once included things that we would call paranormal in respectable history. Yeah. Paranormal comes out of the idea of what became considered normal in the 19th century. You know, the, the, that was when the foundations of modern science were, lay, were laid down. And things that were outside though that were outside what was considered respectable science were paranormal before that they had just been part of natural science you know they were um monsters bizarre stories they were looked at by scientists and scholars uh, philosophers they weren't considered outside the realm of respectable inquiry that was that I'd say that is really what, what what we're talking about here. And of course sometimes things make the jump. For example, ball lightning was long considered a paranormal phenomenon. However, it turned out ball lightning actually happens. It can be studied. It can be even be reproduced in the laboratory. So it's no longer considered paranormal. Whether that will happen to other things, I couldn't say. Um the uh in in the book, I have a uh, a chapter on Pedro, the very very tiny mummy that was found in Wyoming years ago, and uh, eventually disappeared. Well, Pedro w- uh, became the basis for a lot of folklore, but finally, you know, he's the 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 other mummies like Pedro have since been discovered and are being studied. So they are no they no longer belong to the area of the paranormal. We just don't quite know what they are yet. Hmm. Well, one of the other interesting things in this uh, field, I would say, is that the power of the human mind that we haven't really I mean, oftentimes what happens is with enough attention or focus or belief, there's this foundation for something to exist and then and I'm thinking about like certain cults like UFO cults or something where they have a full uh, type of society or structure kind of based on mutual belief and then somehow that is ripped from the bottom of the structure and then it all collapses and the idea just becomes ludicrous at that point. Well, let, let's talk about that idea of mutual belief because – Let's say that something indeed paranormal happened with the bye-bye man. If th- there, were, um, there were a series of experiments carried out in the early 1970s by the Toronto Society for Psychical Research, they decided that they were going to try to create seance room phenomena in full light and without a medium. And what they did was they decided to create a character themselves. They called him Philip, and Philip was an English nobleman. And to make sure that they weren't ever going to get in contact with a real spirit, they made the story half fiction, half real, so they could get pictures of the palace that he lived in and things like that. Well, after after uh, uh, several seances, they began to 
they, they did some studies on some other on some other people that were looking in this area, and they discovered that the, in order to get results, you had to create kind of a party atmosphere. It had to be lighthearted. Uh, they would eat candy. They would sing sing silly songs, and they began to get rapping responses to their questions. They they began to get their table to move. On one or two occasions, they even uh, believed that they got it to levitate off the ground. They got, uh, not only were their questions answered, they were able to get metal bent. This was in the 70s when spoon bending was very popular. So they were, some, some pieces of metal were bent, and they, be, they got a whole range of paranormal phenomena through what they believe was group PK, that is, group psychokinesis. The idea that if a group st- concentrates and tries to bring about something paranormal, that it's capable of doing it. Now, there are things from folklore and from mystical beliefs. You know, people talk about tulpas, things like that, that would suggest that this is true. If it is true, then it is possible that the phenomena that were experienced by Catherine and by Jonathan were created by the three of them through this kind of group effort, because this was not a laboratory experiment. As they acquired pieces of uh, pieces of the Bye Bye Man story, they talked about it, they thought about it, they elaborated on it, and I'm sure they made a major contribution to what eventually came out of the um, the Ouija board. So it could be that they created the phenomena that they experienced. Well, so then, did, have you you've looked into this to, to see the, the veracity of the various uh, origins of the story? You know, how much how much can you actually verify? Uh, almost nothing. In fact, I don't believe that I was able to verify any of it because there was. Oh, well, first of all, let's start with Algiers when. They they had the impression that Algiers was uh, like a small town or a village or something, but it wasn't, of course. It was a section of New Orleans. They didn't know this. And they might have gotten the idea that it was kind of a swampy country area from the movie um, – oh, my gosh, what was the name of that movie with Mickey Rourke? Uh, something Angel, Fallen Angel? Angel Heart. Angel Heart, that's it. I'm sorry, I went blank for a moment. Uh, Angel Heart, where the, where the, where Algiers plays an important part in that in that movie, and it's portrayed as this uh, very rural area. That wasn't true at all. Again, uh, Algiers is a railroad hub, so that might be where that part of the story came from. Now, was there an orphanage in Algiers? No, there wasn't. There was a home for disabled children, but that didn't exist until 1967, so that was impossible too. Uh, there were really, there was really nothing that suggested that the Bye Bye Man could have been real. However, having said that, there were quite a few gruesome murderers. Uh, who rode the rails in the 1920s and chopped up a lot of people. Uh, the most famous of them was probably the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run in Cleveland, whose murders were definitely... Con- he used to decapitate 
people and whose murders were definitely connected to the rails and he does seem to have to ride he probably rode the rails back and forth he might have been a hobo no one no one really knows it's unlikely but uh, again no one no one ever knows so there were a series of gruesome murders connected to the railroads in the 1920s and the 1930s that is that is far from uh, proving that something like the Bye Bye Man ever existed. There was also a strange murder, um, I think it was in Florence, Montana, where these three women were murdered in a beauty shop and uh, by a vaguely Bye Bye Man-looking character. So uh, again, that was uh, that was that was fairly recent, though. I think that, I, I don't remember the year, but that was fairly recent. So that is about as far as we can go with verifying it. Having said that, the the story itself has a, a quality of folklore. I mean, it feels like something, it feels like a story that people might have told for a hundred years. And I suspect that Eli's background in, in folklore probably influenced that. Hmm. Well, then there is this, this, the idea of the urban legend that just has this natural spreading quality. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious what a film will do to this story. You were saying how each of the different, there's a contribution made by the various people who touch it. I wonder, you know, what a movie will do to this because it has, like you say, a folklore quality as well as almost like this archetype. Uh, there's there's something meaty there, like the Slender Man or, you know, some of these other scary figures that just end up haunting us. Well, I I don't know what the uh, what the movie. I I have no idea what story they told in the movie. I have had no contact with them, and the and the the, uh, the um, movie company is keeping the storyline very quiet. So I don't know what they did, but uh, I would imagine that the story will ha- had to have been adopted for the screen. I'm sure it's been streamlined. Extraneous characters have been taken out. Um, it's been simplified. It's just that's the way you do it if you're going to tell, it, tell a, a story in film. What I think might also happen, though, is that this will increase interest in the book, so more people will read this story as it appeared in print. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Bye Bye Man ends up taking on a kind of life of his own, the way the Slender Man has. I'll tell you the truth. When uh, the Bye Bye Man predates Slender Man by quite a few years, when the film company optioned it, I more or less was being paid to let them do what they want. So I I left the story alone. I didn't uh, I didn't put it in different. I didn't uh, describe it to uh, in different media. In different mediums, rather, you know, it just—it was kind of they. Be, it belonged to them. There, you should see the contract. It's amazing. It's like forty pages long. Anyway, the so when Slenderman appeared, I'll be honest, I was jealous because when I saw the way Slenderman just spread through American folklore and changed from being a work of fiction. We know the first we know the date it appeared, we know who created it to something that was so convincing that children were were attempting murder based on what they believed about the slenderman. I was 
really impressed because I thought something like that was going to happen with the bye-bye men. We'll see. Maybe it still will. But it, it, it would be normal for it to transform. It would be normal for it to change and evolve hmm. with maybe uh, one or two essential elements remaining. For example, the idea that you, the, the, as long as you think of his name, you're vulnerable. Yeah, and so it was comforting to me before <laughs> to think that we didn't really know his name, that the Bye Bye Man was the nickname, and that the real name is something that I don't know yet. <laughs> right. Well, that, that's you can't that that uh, don't take any comfort in that. <laughs> We're all doomed. <laughs> well, so here's what I'm curious about. So. Have you, I mean, often a lot of people are really, they're driven by the thing that um, intrigues them. Have you been able to turn this love of the, the bazaar into your job? Yeah, more or less. It's what I do. I write, I research and write about the truly bizarre. And I spend a lot of my time looking for stories that other people have missed. It is not the most... Um, not the most financially rewarding career, but uh, it gives me enormous satisfaction. I mean, I wake up every day and I think to myself, what will I find today? Will it be a story about a cult murder that's been forgotten or a mass panic? Uh, I mean, just the other... I spent all night looking for... uh, I've been up since yesterday. I spent all night looking for murders that had occult elements that have been forgotten. And I have found some very strange ones. And then what is, I mean, as far as your writers, your writer process, what is that? Is it, um, do you write every day or is more you research and then when you have enough material, then you start to flesh it out? Or what does that look like? Well, normally what I will do is I will try... Now that I'm preparing a book, this is not normal. My normal way of working is I will try to find stories that are strange enough to interest me, and I believe I can sell somewhere because you have to be able to sell your stories, or otherwise there's no, there's no, no uh, you don't get anything for them. So uh, let's say I've got a good story for the Fortean Times, which is probably the magazine that has printed more of my material than any other. I will do a good amount of research, and when I have something that seems like it's got some meat to it, I will approach them, um, I will pitch the idea to them, and they, they almost always go for it because I find stuff that no one else has found. The, uh, then I will do the rest of the research, and I will flesh out everything I can possibly find. I Research is the best part of this. I love doing research. I love going through censuses and um, city directories and just finding out what actually happened and who these people were. Uh, I have a bookcase full of nothing but binders containing information that I've collected about my, the stories I write. And then I start to write, and I will usually write, if it's a 3,000-word story, I'll end up writing 10,000 words because I've got all this great information and I want to share it, but then, of course, you have to start cutting things out and making uh, making it a manageable size. Then after I've accumulated a lot of stories, I can put them in a book, although normally what happens is when I have 
this has happened the last two books where I will I'll have I'll have accumulated a few stories and then they'll ask me for a book. So then I, I spend the rest of the time just getting stories for the book. Well so I I think if I'm not mistaken, the the Bye Bye Man is the that republication has been turned into an audio book now too, and it, it the credits list you. Did, does that mean that you've taken that next step and you're actually reading the introduction or something? Yes, I, 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 re- I read the introduction and I, I read the afterword, but the guy reading the book is Scott Brick, which I am very excited about because he is a great book reader. He's, he's a well-known book reader who's read a lot yeah. of... Yeah, so this book seems poised to really take off. Yeah, I, I certainly hope it will. Uh, I mean, besides the fact that um, you know, it's I, I do a lot of, I think I do good work, and I would really love for more people to read my books. And The Strange But True, which is more or less the way I would describe what I write, The Strange But True is kind of a small genre. And if it, if more, if it can become more, if more people can get interested in it, I think it would be great because uh, I think they'll enjoy these stories. Well, when do you think is the right season for ghost stories, or is it always for you? Well, of course, October is my busy month, but uh, you know because people are preparing for Halloween. But uh, this is what I do all the time. Uh, to be honest, Halloween's the only day of the year where I feel normal. <laughs> um, well, on this show, our the thing that really gets us excited is the idea of synchronicity, which is a meaningful coincidence. The, it's the idea of meaning in something that really doesn't shouldn't have meaning, but to the the person who experiences it has all kinds of meaning is does does that enter into your process or does do you have any good synchronicities you could share um well personally i i haven't had a lot although i have had a lot of experience with what some with what some researchers call the library angels sure and i i have had a lot of that where i will pull out a book at random and find something that is simply perfect for what I'm working on. That has happened more than once. I think one of the few things I've ever had that happened to me that was synchronous, this is going to sound very silly. I was watching an old horror movie one night called The Beast, I think it was called The Beast with Five Fingers. And it was about this crazy pianist whose hand gets cut off and the hand takes on a life of its own. Peter Lorre is in it. And we're never really sure whether the hand is really there or he's just insane. But I was very late at night. I was watching this. I was sort of half drowsing off. It was an old black and white film. And at one point, Peter Lorre was screaming, the hand, the horrible hand. And at that moment, a big white spider came crawling over the armrest. I was looking right at it, and it looked exactly like a giant, a big white hand. Well, not giant, of course, but it was a big spider. But it looked like a tiny white hand coming over the edge of the uh, of the armrest. That was strange. <laughs> well, so, I mean, where this topic inevitably leads us, and what happens to a lot of the, the folks in these folktales is... They need to reimagine science in some way to explain what the heck is going on. Do you think we'll, and someone like Rupert Sheldrake or uh, D. 
Dean Radin, this is what they do. They're looking for a larger explanation of reality. Do you think we'll get there? And is this something that interests you, or do you just like the the stories themselves? Well, that's that's kind of a that's a very um, it's kind of a complicated question. I uh, I don't demand explanations for these things and. The fact of the matter is that a lot of people who have spent their lives searching for explanations of the paranormal go crazy. There is something in the paranormal that seems to affect people's minds in ways that it shouldn't. I can tell you a half dozen examples, but I, you know, it's not really the kind of thing you you talk about because it's this is the people, this is their personal lives. And I think it's probably best for a lot of people to stay away from trying to explain the paranormal. I have, I find it interesting, but again, it for me, it is just one more facet of the bizarre and the strange. So and since I concentrate on history and approaching these things as history, there is a certain level of distance between me and the big questions of, well, how does psychokinesis work? Is there survival after death? All of the basic, you know, the, the, the questions that everyone asks, uh, are these things, do they have a greater meaning? Do they... Uh, do they attack the root of of uh, you know, causality and things like that? Uh, I generally don't have to deal with those things. My interest is, is the story that we've received accurate? Can we prove that this actually happened? I mean, were the people there? Did the people even exist? You know, some of the most popular paranormal stories were actually began as works of fiction, like the disappearance of Oliver Lurch. That's a classic example, but it's not the only one. Well, so tell us a little bit, we're just about out of time, what what the new book will be about and when we can expect it. Oh, well, don't hold your breath. I'm a slow and painstaking writer. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy Mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist. That came out just last year, and that has some wonderful stories in it. Uh, people that commit suicide by beheading themselves, uh, an early cult murder in the United States, uh, a cult of blood drinkers, oh, all kinds of things. Oh, and a, a, pol- a poltergeist that um, once uh, a, a town that was named after a poltergeist, a local poltergeist. So there's quite a lot in that book. Also, uh, a case of Ouija hysteria and a different interpretation of of um, Bigfoot and a different interpretation of the clown panics of the early 1980s. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Oh, sure. Anyone that would like to uh, keep, get in touch with me can do it through my Facebook page of Historian of the Strange. Perfect. You've been listening to Robert Schneck on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Be sure and check out his books, to which we'll link, as well as his Facebook page. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. 
Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and don't think it, don't say it. Don't let me down